Kathleen Kelly hates Joe Fox. Do you know why? Well, let me tell you. Joe Fox has opened up a large commercial bookstore right across the street from her boutique bookstore named The Shop Around the Corner. They express their displeasure to each other multiple times when they meet in real life. However, on the Internet, hidden behind their screen names, Joe and Kathleen are falling in love with each other. The irony is thick in the 1998 movie that tells their story called You've Got Mail. Along the way, Joe, played by Tom Hanks, discovers that Kathleen, played by Meg Ryan, is his online sweetheart and decides to keep the secret while wooing her in real life. And Kathleen begins falling for Joe over time, but of course still hates him in principle because he's putting her out of business and longs for her secret love. And of course, at the end of the movie, if you've ever seen this romantic rom-com, in a beautiful park, on a golden afternoon, the online lovers agree to finally meet. And Kathleen discovers it was Joe all along. In her last line of the movie, she emotes, I wanted it to be you so badly. Cue the music to somewhere over the rainbow. The camera pans back and up into the sky, and the audience goes, ah. Don't we love a happy ending? Wouldn't you love one in Ecclesiastes too? How about four of them? Because that's the number of times that Solomon has dropped into this book these surprisingly positive texts into his research project final report. They appear like rays of light in an otherwise pretty dark book. And the first of these sunbeams shines in our text this morning. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this particular text, quote, a remarkable passage, one that explains everything preceding and following it, the principal conclusion, in fact, the point of the whole book, unquote. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Let's take a quick look at the breakdown of these three short verses to try to figure out what is this important message that this text contains. Notice a few observations as we just look at the text, as, as you would look at the text in your own Bible study. You could very easily see these same things. After 23 verses in chapter 2, with no mention of God at all, here God is referenced three times in these three verses. Striking. There's a new phrase we haven't seen in Ecclesiastes yet here in verse 24. There is nothing better. Nothing better. It's a phrase that we'll see come up again three more times in our book 
in next week's text, in chapter 3, verse 12 and verse 22. Also later in chapter 8 and verse, thir- and verse 15. And every time we see this phrase come up in this book, it's in one of those ray of light passages. We see the familiar at the end here, the familiar vanity and striving after wind, verse 26. But for once, they don't apply to the whole text. Only a part at the end having to do with sinners. We'll get to that. And then notice, too, there seem to be two groupings of three subjects in here. Do you see it? Eating drinking and working, toil, in verse 24, and then wisdom, knowledge, and joy, in verse 25. Now, in leading us through this text this morning, I want to frame the message in two big ideas. So if you're taking notes, and I hope you do, use those scripture journals we've got out there. The first big idea is this, God's presence. He is here. And then secondly, a little play on the word, God's presence. He has something to give us, presence. So let's look first of all at God's presence. I don't want to spend a long time on this, but I feel like it's really important for us to pause for just a moment, and state the obvious. God is here. He's in our text. In this darkness, full of despair, after two chapters where God was only briefly mentioned once, here he is three times, significantly, wonderfully, here. Don't miss this. Solomon has taken us on a journey in these two chapters. He's been showing us one thing after another after another that does not provide the meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life. No, it is not work. No, it is not even wisdom. No, it's not pleasure. No, it's not your possessions. And no, it's not even your legacy and how you'll be remembered. It's something else. It's an alternative to life under the sun. It's a person. It's God himself. One author writes this, quote, Having experienced the bankruptcy of our pretended autonomy, that I'm in charge, I'm independent, I make my own way. The preacher now points to the God who occupies the heavenly realm and to the life of faith in him, unquote. Another way we could think about this is Solomon has moved from under the sun to beyond the sun. Or from life apart from God to life with God. And the preacher's message for us this morning is simply this. 
God makes all the difference. You may have thought Solomon was writing this book as a man far away from God. A man who had made one too many foolish choices. An unrepentant king who had wrecked his life. So we read the darkness of chapters 1 and 2, and there's more to come. And we conclude, this is Solomon's perspective. But it is not Solomon's perspective. It is true that Solomon made many sinful choices, especially in regards to women. Come on. A thousand of them? And the accumulation of wealth and might, which he was forbidden to do by the law of God. But Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes with wisdom, supernaturally given wisdom. He's writing Ecclesiastes inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, like every other biblical book. He means for you to see the darkness, to feel the weight of the despair. He's been there. His heart had been pulled away from the Lord by his wives, by their false gods. But make no mistake, Solomon knows the way out of the darkness too. And he's sharing it with us here in this text. And he will do it again three more times in this book, at least, before we're finished. After six largely negative sermon texts, this is a turning point in Ecclesiastes. So it's different because God is here. His presence makes all the difference. Now, secondly, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning, I want you to see God's presence. So God's sudden appearance here in these verses is striking to us after not having seen him very much in this book. But what does his appearance mean? What is his significance in this text? It is certainly that God is here, but God is here for a reason. To give us gifts. Gifts that will help us in the darkness. Gifts that give us the proper perspective. The right understanding of life. A proper world view. A way to think about life under the sun. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, in his work. This also I saw is, note these next words, from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, there's a number of gifts that God mentions here, but I want to summarize them in two categories this morning as we think about them. 
two categories of gifts. The first is the gift of joy. And then I want to talk about the gift of justice. Let's talk about the gift of joy. In the meaninglessness, vanity, emptiness, darkness, Solomon calls us to joy. Does that not strike you as a little different? And where do we find joy? Solomon says, in eating, in drinking, in working. Some of the very things he earlier called vanity. What's the difference? Well, first notice that these gifts cannot be enjoyed properly apart from God. Try as they might, the world will never know true, lasting, satisfying, eternal enjoyment outside a right relationship with God. Can't be done. Does that mean that the world can't enjoy a good meal? Or take pride in their work? No, it doesn't mean that. But the lost world is seeking a type of joy from these things to bring them ultimate satisfaction, to find their meaning, their identity, their purpose. And all these things, as Solomon has pointed out time and time again, cannot fit that bill. They can't eternally satisfy. That's why, friends, let the conviction fall on who it will. That's why we keep looking for the next model of our smartphone or the latest version of Xbox or PlayStation or the newest season of that show we can't get enough of. We don't find satisfaction in any of them. We find fleeting Pleasure that wants more. Always wants more. We love our paycheck until we see the new job posting with a bigger take-home pay. Or we love our French fryer job at our fast food restaurant until our friend gets promoted to manager. We always want more, and we always want better under the sun apart from God. This is the unsatisfying life of vanity under the sun. But there is a way, Solomon tells us, there is a way to truly, simply, and rightly enjoy the gifts of God. Take food, for example. I was just talking with Lori Ochin yesterday on social media, weren't we, Lori? about shrimp and grits and how I hated grits all my life, all my life, until I visited Savannah last year and had shrimp and grits at Vicks on the River. I had grits before. I'd tasted them as a kid growing up. Tasted like sand and glue mixed together. But this, this was mature grits. 
These were stone ground grits. These were cheddar grits. And these weren't the shrimp that I had gotten off the buffet at Golden Corral that had been sitting there for a few minutes. You know what I'm talking about? These were large and fresh and pink and super sweet. And a rich gravy covered the whole dish. And I devoured it. And now I compare all shrimp and grits to that dish. Pastor Trey and I are always on the lookout for the world's best French onion soup. Have we found it? We're still searching. And you know, there's that one kind of ice cream that you can only get at that one place. You know what I'm talking about. But if my goal in life is to, be, to become satisfied by Vicks Shrimp and Grits, I am pretty certain it would be a letdown. I could go back every day and eat that meal for lunch and dinner over and over and over and over. And I'm pretty certain that it would get more and more and more normal. And in just a few days, I'd never want to eat it again. We were not created to find meaning and satisfaction in food. Second, notice that the enjoyment of these gifts, all God's gifts, only comes with the right perspective. They're not the answer to vanity. God is the answer to vanity. Not food, not eating, not working. God is the answer to the darkness. But the truth is, I can enjoy food and drink and work because of God. One author writes this, what spoils them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give, unquote. And here's how God helps us. What God does is helps us to think correctly about his gifts so we can enjoy them as he intended for them to be enjoyed, not as the world tries to find joy in them. This is, in fact, the way that God intended from the very beginning. When he placed us in a garden and told us that we could eat and drink and work in perfection. But even after sin entered the world and work became hard and weeds grew up along with the fruit and the food, we could still find pleasure amid the curse as we live lives to please God. Those who please God are those who acknowledge the sovereign God. Those who receive enjoyment from their work as a gift from God. Those who honor God by being grateful for God's gifts. 
on those who please God, God showers his good gifts. Not only joy, but as the, the next verse says, also wisdom and knowledge. Things we need in the darkness. There's a reason David, Solomon's father, wrote that the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We need the light. We need the wisdom. We need the knowledge. We need the joy to light our path because we live in a world under the sun where it's dark. Our God-given perspective on His good gifts is simply to receive them as dependent creatures and be thankful for them. Only then can you sit down at a meal and truly enjoy it as God intended. And all the myriad, all the varieties of food and drink and work that exist in this world. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You remember in Matthew 6? Give us this day our daily bread. How did we get it? From the hand of God. He gives it. It's a gift. All the pleasures of life were to be regarded, Solomon is teaching us, not as entitlements, not as rewards for our own striving. I worked hard so I can eat this filet mignon. Or I deserve it because I've had a hard week and I deserve this meal. That's not how God designed us to enjoy His gifts. The gifts, the pleasure in the gifts comes from understanding and acknowledging that they are not entitlements. They're not rewards for our strivings. They're not to be consumed endlessly or lustfully. The enjoyment they bring actually encourages our worship for God and not simply for ourselves. To please Him in what we do and how we do it actually brings joy to our work. And that is something the world does not and cannot comprehend. This is a different viewpoint than man has under the sun. It's an alternative vision for life, living for the glory of God, for the pleasure of God, rather than ourselves. And when we do that, it actually brings joy and pleasure to our lives. We find our satisfaction not in the things, we find our satisfaction in him, and then we find contentment and joy in the pleasure his gifts bring. That's why a good meal, going back to the eating theme again, can be such a pleasurable experience for a Christian. I will often find myself thinking many things during a great meal. Thankfulness for a hard-working waiter. The creativity of a hard-working chef in the kitchen. The effort of fishermen out on the shrimp boats. The cleanliness 
of a restaurant from the work of custodians or the pleasing decor by the designers who worked on it. All of these are gifts of God to me in that meal. And as a Christian, it humbles me and it makes me thankful and it makes me content and it makes me enjoy the meal that's set before me. And it points me to my father who loves to give gifts to his children. Now, I have to admit, it's harder to think that way at McDonald's. But you can if you try. But it may also mean from time to time that you have to invest more in your eating and drinking and working. Perhaps eat fresher or more nutritious food. Perhaps taking the time to grow it yourself or to frequent local farmers and restaurants that draw from the the bounty of the earth around where you live. The more that we live as Christians in in mass production and in the middle of consumerism and, and instant gratification where we don't have to put out any work to get what we get, the more difficult it is to think as we should think and enjoy what God has given us to enjoy. Just take some time to think about all of that. But in a world of vanity, only God gives us true joy. And it's something we desperately need, isn't it? I want to talk for just a moment, too, about the gift of justice, which we find in our passage here. Notice verse 26 once again. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. What does this mean? I like the way this commentator puts it. Listen to this. When the Red Sea covered the Egyptian army. Remember that? Can you see it from the banks there of the Red Sea? You're part of the Israelite group. You've gotten through on dry ground. And then you watch the soldiers coming. And the Red Sea closes on top of them. When Sisera fell into the hands of Jael, I don't know if you remember that story, but it's got a point to it. And when Haman was hanged, as Esther 7.10 says, on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Remember that story? God's people rightly rejoiced. So too, when Jesus comes again to judge the wicked at the final judgment, God's people will rightly and eternally rejoice in the justice of God. Solomon had written about this idea before when he was a little younger in Proverbs 13, verse 22. Listen to what he wrote. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, his grandchildren. 
But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. It means that in the end, someone will inherit the earth, and it won't be the sinner's. It'll be the ones who please God. God will make all things right, all the injustice that makes us groan, that makes us weep, that makes us angry. He has promised he will make it all right. All the suffering we've endured in this life for the cause of Jesus Christ will be rewarded. And the vanity will be for the sinner. Solomon's father, King David, wrote some similar sentiments in his famous Psalm 23. You guys know this one. You could probably quote it, right? But listen, because the Lord was his shepherd, he didn't have to worry about anything, right? Just following the shepherd. That's what David was concerned with. The shepherd would feed him, give him drink, satisfy him, The presence of the shepherd could be felt even in the valley of the shadow of death in the darkness in the times of great despair with vanity all around. But one day the shepherd would set up a table a feast for him in front of all of his conquered enemies. Their spoils would go to him because the Lord was his shepherd. The same is true for you who follow the Lord. I'll ask the praise team to return to the front for our final song. As they're coming... If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, isn't it incredibly frustrating trying to find ultimate meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life? Jesus is the only one who can shine light into your darkness and help you find the way to eternal life. He's the only one. I would call you to trust in him today while there's still time. Fellow Christians, a few questions for you this morning. What gets you up on Monday morning? My alarm. Okay, thanks. What what, what gets you up on Monday morning? Is it the threat of being fired if you don't show up at your job? Is it the drive to gain more and more money and be successful and be promoted? Or is it the excitement to serve your shepherd in your workplace? Are you thinking about the gifts of God all around you every day? Are you noticing them? Are you thanking God for them? Are you content and finding his joy in his gifts to you?
Does God make the difference in your life? His being there, his being with you, does that make the the difference in your life? Or is your life about something else? Is God your purpose for living? Or are you just trying to get through the day? Are you drowning in the emptiness all around you? A lot of Christians do. Or are you soaring to the clouds with Christian hope, with Christian joy? Do you need to make some adjustments in the way you process the world around you? The way you think about the gifts of God? The way you think about His justice? Do you need to take every thought captive to Christ? As Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Yep, your pastor does. Just as I am, brothers and sisters. I got to work on this every day. Every single day. But you know what? When I take time every day to think about and thank my God for his kindness to me in all the millions of little ways that I see it all around me, it changes the way I live. It melts away the darkness. I don't even want to watch the evening news because my life is already bathed in light and joy and I'm content. I'm happy. But if your life is going after something else, and we all do, Welcome to the darkness. Tread water. It's getting deeper and deeper under you. It's getting harder and harder to maintain that kind of life. Drudgery. Misery. doesn't have to be that way. God makes the difference. It's all about changing our perspective. The stuff around us is still there. The vanity is still there. The darkness is still there. It's not about ignoring it. It's about thinking differently about it. And only God can help us to do that and receive the joy that comes from it. Let's stand together. Let's close with a song that helps us to be thankful to our great God for all of his good gifts.